Loved, cherished, comforted. Welcome to the podcast ministry of Our Resolute Hope, where you will find grace, not just a concept or a doctrine of grace, but a person, a person whose name is Jesus, a person who brings hope, a determined, resolute hope that can sustain you and empower you to live courageously in this fallen world. Join us now as we learn more about Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our life. Hi there, folks. Welcome back to the Our Resolute Hope podcast. Once again, I'm your host. My name is John Russin, and I'm here today with my dear friend, Pastor Frank Friedman from South Louisiana. How are you today, my friend? It was great to see you this morning. Oh, it was great to see you. Wish you could have been here and not via a Zoom meeting. It's uh, 50 degree weather in South Louisiana. Can you believe it? My goodness. Is that good or bad? Oh, that's good. It's beautiful. Okay, well, <laughs> so our, our one day out of the year. <laughs> oh, so so it's so it's your winter day today. Well, friends, thanks for joining us, and uh, thanks for putting up with our banter. Uh, you've caught us in the middle of our current series. We're calling it the One Another's um, Life in the Body of Christ. At least as Frank and I see it, uh, and it's about what we think kingdom living needs to look like on this earth. And so we've been slowly working through a number of the one another's in scripture. And we've gone through six of them so far. And we're going to pick up another one today. And Frank, I'll tell you in advance, this one has some flashpoints associated with it. Because as I look around in my life and in the life of the modern church, sometimes I think we haven't done a very good job with this one. So you ready? Buckle up. Yes. <laughs> okay. Here we go. This one is have equal concern for one another. And this comes from 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul writes, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for one another. Now, Frank, you know as well as I, this touches on an issue, uh, the issue of division that seems to be forefront in the modern church. It comes out in every every place I look, so many facets. Don't you agree? Oh, John, yes. I think, you know, one of the, the issues for us, I think, is that a lot of us, when we come to Christ, we're taught that we can have an intimate relationship with God, that he's a personal Lord and Savior. Do you remember those words? How oh, yeah. good they were? Your personal Lord and Savior. But we forget that when we received Christ, we also received the entire family of those who have put their faith in Christ. So it's not Christ in me. It's Christ, as you know, the text says Christ in you. It's a plural you. Christ in you all. And so there's a not only a commitment and dependence upon God, I think God set this thing up so there would be a commitment and an interdependence between every single believer. And division uh, is the proof that we, as you said, John, we haven't done a very good job. No, we haven't. You know, it's almost like that, uh, that book Animal Farm written so many years ago, where it says all the animals in the barnyard were equal but some were more equal than others. And I think we as the modern church uh, are guilty of that very same thing. Because my friend, you know, 
as well as I, because we've both been elders for decades, we have seen the church divide on some of the strangest lines. Now, of course, we divide on theology. We divide on whether or not we have spiritual gifts or which gifts we have and how they're expressed. We divide on lifestyle. We divide on income. I remember, Frank, some years ago, we had the issue of which is the most godly, to be homeschooling or to put your kids in a Christian school or Christian abandonment centers. I think that was the phrase. Or public school. You know, every place I look over my entire time serving as an elder, I just saw this us versus them mindset popping up in the most bizarre ways. Hmm. You know, I think the core of that, John, is the failure to understand the new covenant uh, in twofold fashion. One is, as you know, when we come to Christ and we understand the new covenant, we understand that we have been crucified with him, buried with him, and raised brand new. The resurrection has already occurred. So we have an identity that's second to none in the universe because we are now a child of the king. And you can't get any more significant than that. But if you don't understand how significant you are simply by being in Christ, you're going to have to manufacture a significance. And the way most people do that in religious circles is they establish a uniqueness for themselves in practice or belief, and then a put down of others who don't hold that same belief. Or oh, practice. boy, is that true or what? And then the second, yeah, and then the second, John, is the new covenant understanding of grace, that we don't merit righteousness or acceptance with God by anything we do or don't do. Our merit for every one of us is faith in the finished work of Christ. That levels the playing field to the point where all those attempts at distinctiveness just sort of fall by the wayside in terms of significance. You know, when you were talking, John, you did not mention uh, the one major separative issue. Which version of the Bible? Oh. <laughs> and, you know, in the grace economy where we understand our identity, Boy, John, if you want to use that New English version, I'm happy for you. Uh, but I'll stick with the King James and you can be happy for me. And I can tell you that if it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. <laughs> but uh. we can, who cares? Those should not separate us because we've been so united in Christ. Well, just so the listeners know, I prefer the new King James, a little more <laughs> contemporary. Uh, while Frank's made a big switch and he's changed trains completely, he now likes the new American standard, but it's the 1995 version. So you've got to really pick it. <laughs> anyway, okay, let's begin to pick this verse apart, my friend. And I want to focus on the word concern. Uh, and I want to define that. If you find that word used in, in the Greek, it means uh, some pretty intimate caring things. It means that we should look out for each other. We should promote each other's interests. We should care for and provide for in each other. In other words, Frank, 
when it comes to each other, we're supposed to have each other's backs. We're supposed to lift each other up. We're supposed to protect each other. It's almost like they're so much a part of us that we're doing this for ourselves. And so this is the, the intensity of that word, have equal concern for each other. And while I've seen it sometimes, I don't see it as much as I'd like to in the body of Christ. We tend to do just the opposite sometimes. You know, John, as I was listening to you talk about that, it's, it's really a mindset. It's an attitude. Uh, maybe we could even go so far as to call it a decision that's already been made. And as I was listening to you, I couldn't help but think of Ephesians 5, where it talks about the husband uh, loving his wife enough to lay down his life for her. And then the Holy Spirit went on to say, because no man ever hated his own body. Um, if you're that much in union with your bride, that you are one with her, then you better be concerned about her needs and exalt her and love her and prefer her and serve her because you're actually doing so to your own body. And I think what you're saying is that the Holy Spirit applied that same principle in a corporate way to each individual member of the larger body of Christ. In other words, I better take care to be concerned for you because we're one body, uh, different members, but we're one body. And so my care for you is care for my body, the body of Christ. Yeah, it's interesting that even though this passage is found in the uh, first letter to the Corinthians, and we know some of the problems that Paul addressed in that letter, we might tend to think that that was the only church that had these partiality issues, uh, but it's not. Uh, we, mm -hmm. we find it everywhere. I remember, Frank, a conversation you had where, with someone where uh, they had changed churches because someone had begun to pressure them uh, to give more money because Father had blessed them with resources. Mm -hmm. And uh, I look at that and, boy, how can, how can there be any better example of having unequal concern for someone than to look at the financial resources that someone has and pressure them? Uh, to give those. I, my mind goes back to Jesus' story in Luke uh, about the widow's mites. She gave more than all the others because her heart was behind it. So I guess I have a little bit of a sore spot when it comes to pressuring people about money over, that I've developed over the years. Well, you know, you're really not um, concerned for them. You're concerned for what they can do for you. At that point, it's, you're really looking at them not so much as a person to be loved, but, you know, a checking account, if you yeah. would, to a be tool, a used. A tool to be used, yeah. Yeah, a tool is a great word, yeah. And you can't do that because you remember in, that, in the Corinthian letter, I think it's the second one, uh, Paul went on to say, uh, don't look at any man, any woman ever again after the flesh. Don't look at them by, by what they do, uh, what they've done, what they have, what they don't have. See them through the eyes of Christ as somebody he loves and gave his life for. Uh, 
Boy, that'll revolutionize how you treat people. It will. Um, the way I look at it, my friend, partiality in any sense is a curse on, on humanity. It's a sin. Hmm. And when you, it doesn't take more than a few minutes to look around and see that uh, our world shows partiality in so many different ways. Mm. Class and gender and race, uh, you know, sexual orientation, uh, financial resources. Uh, it's just, I don't know, it's, it just sort of staggers me, especially when I think of these, my friend, in light of uh, what Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 3, where he talks about slave or free, male or female. Uh, every distinction that humankind ever used to divide itself or uh, make itself unique is obliterated at the cross. Mm. Every single one. All of us are in Christ. All of us are equal heirs. Mm. And so because we're equal heirs, Frank, every single one of us deserves equal respect, equal honor, and equal concern. Mm. You know, John, I was listening to you. Uh, boy, you you tied that in so well to that whole idea of not looking at anybody after the flesh years and years ago. My goodness, this is probably 39 years ago. Uh, there was a gentleman in a church where I was ministering and he had gotten a lifetime settlement from an injury on the job. And so he never worked. And, you know, when somebody doesn't work, they lose uh, self-worth, I think, um, and so he began to uh, drink and smoke and became very obese. And he would come to church, but he wouldn't come in the building, uh, pace around. And he was very, uh, boy, I, I don't know, maybe the word cantankerous, obstinate, arrogant, maybe. And he was in pain. Uh, and he came into my office one day and he said, hey, I'm thinking about going into seminary. And I said, wow. I said, okay, well, let's talk about that. And then I gave him some catalogs to look at. And it was crazy. But over the next six months, he quit smoking. He quit drinking. He lost weight. He started wearing a tie. Oh, wow. And, yeah. And coming to, into the church building. And after about six months, his wife came up to me and said, whatever you're doing to my husband, please don't stop. And I thought, my goodness, what am I doing? And about a couple months later, he came into my office again. And he said, do you remember when I came and asked you about going to seminary? And I said, yes, sir, I sure do. And he said, you're the, you aren't the first pastor I ever asked about that. But you're the first one that didn't laugh at me and actually encouraged me. And, you know, John, I don't share that to uh toot my own horn, because nine times out of 10, I probably wouldn't have done that again. I I'd have might have been laughing. But at that point, walking in the spirit, the spirit ministered this idea of concern for this man. And that's worked itself out in the form of encouragement. And he probably hadn't been encouraged in a long, long time. And boy, the power that that had. And you know what I would attribute that to, John, as I'm thinking about this? It's the love of God flowing through a man or a woman who is walking by faith to minister concern. 
and uh, look at the power it had in that guy's life. Yeah, it changed him. Did he ever go? I have no idea. We left that church and I, I lost track of him. Hmm. Well, but the, the fruit that father bore in him through you uh, was obvious. So yeah. thank you for that. Well, this is an interesting fact because, because it brings up uh, the next point I wanted us to chat about. And it ties in so closely because it deals with the human body as an example of what it's like to have mutual concern for each other. You know, in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, this same chapter, uh, Paul talks about the example of the human body and how every single part of the body, the ones that have high honor and the ones that nobody even notices, mm. they all play key roles. Now, the guy who drives a a $70,000 car and writes the big check. Well, he's, he's got a lot of, a a lot of flash. Everybody notices him, but you know, what about the people who are slugging it away in the nursery in children's church, you know, working hard, setting up chairs, mowing the grass. Uh, we just don't tend to notice those, but Frank, the church is really a body and every single part, every single member of that body, has a key role to play. And if they're not there or they don't play it, the health of the body suffers, doesn't it? Yes, so I, I'm thinking of that passage you quoted, John, because he talks about, you know, the foot and, you know, the foot can't say, boy, who am I compared to the eye, you know, because the eye sees so much wonder uh, or the hand, but the, the hand can't say, I don't need the foot because, uh, your hand might be able to pick up that item, but if your foot doesn't get you to the item, you're never picking it up. So we are interdependent. And I think maybe the reason this is such a struggle in America, John, is because as you know, it is very hard to be interdependent, to have need of others when we are so blessed in terms of prosperity, in terms of our cupboards being full and the ability to get gas and the ability to work and make a really good income compared to the rest of the world. It's, it's hard in a, in a prosperous community to live interdependently. And plus, as you know, our country was founded on rugged individualism and the spirit of independence, but that's directly contrary to what the spirit would have us live out in terms of a, a corporate identity. You know, I'm thinking about the examples you just quoted, Frank, about the different body parts, eye and hand and foot. I'll tell you, I can live without an eye. I can live without a hand, but I can't live without my kidney. No one sees my kidneys. I can't live without my lung. You know, in that passage, uh, God places more honor on those body parts that seem less significant. And I think it's really cool that uh, playing the little tiny, quote unquote, minor roles in a local body uh, can bear the most incredible fruit for the kingdom. It's almost as if God gives special honor to those who are laboring in the trenches who don't have the high profile positions uh, just because he knows their heart, their passion, their desire, and the real fruit 
that they're bearing that most people can't see except for him. Yeah. You know, there was a little lady at our church, John, years ago, and she had a fairly high profile ministry. And then she got sick and then she couldn't do that ministry. So she subjugated to a lesser ministry and then to a lesser ministry. And then finally, she was so debilitated physically that um, nobody saw her. She couldn't come to church much anymore. But what people don't realize, John, is she would contact me every Monday and say, okay, what are the prayer needs for the week? Mm, yeah. <laughs> and so she was storming the throne room on behalf of all the saints at the church. And nobody knew what she was doing. But my goodness, probably one of the most important ministries of all to have your name brought to the throne room of the king for what you were going through. And this little lady was going to fulfill that ministry of concern for others, even though she was no longer that high profile functioning oh, yeah. body part. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, you've seen emails from me, Frank. I know you have because you've commented on this. But in the bottom of... Uh, my email, I have in my signature, a quote from a, a saint named Mary Slessor. Mary Slessor was a Scottish missionary to Nigeria. And this is the quote I have. And this is to help me to remember this. And the quote is this, blessed is the man and the woman who was able to serve cheerfully in the second rank. Wow. You know, that's it to me. Uh, that just reminds me that uh, my job is to lift somebody else up. My job is to make other people look good, period, and to lift up the name of Jesus. Mm. Wow. You, you know, as I'm listening to you, John, uh, this popped in my brain. Uh, a guy named Epaphroditus, you know, most Christians, I would say, probably don't know about him. He's in Philippians chapter two. But Paul says when he needed ministry, Epaphroditus ministered to him so effectively that he got very, very sick and near death. And Paul's choice of words were that he risked his life for me to minister to Paul. Now, now that's equal concern. Wrong. Yeah, fact, that's, that's great concern. But the interesting thing is the phrase that he used. It's uh, parabaluamai, and it means to gamble. And around the second or third century, there was a group of Christians who read Philippians 2 and were so encouraged by the story of Epaphroditus that they called themselves the Parabolani, the gamblers. And what they did in history was, for example, if a plague broke out in, say, Pisidian Antioch, and everybody was leaving the city, they went in. Uh, they were the second, third century New York City firefighters at 9-11. You know, when everybody's running out, they're running in. They were the Parabolani, the gamblers, the one who would have such concern for others that they would gamble with their own lives. Wow. Incredible. Uh, Indeed it is. We see that attitude, Frank, uh, 
in our brother Paul. We mentioned this verse earlier from Galatians 3. Uh, let me quote it in full here, because I'd like to talk about this in the context of one more point before we begin to wrap this up. He writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Now, I'm not an expert on biblical his history or social issues at the time, but I suspect that these differences, slave, free, Jew, Greek, male, female, were about the most important differences that were premier in the society mm -hmm. at that time. But he said that even though uh, those are the premier differences, they pale in comparison to the privilege and advantage of knowing Jesus Christ as Savior. Wow. And so I, I think about his own life, my friend. Uh, you remember him uh, as the brilliant young Pharisee, head and shoulders above his peers. Uh, but in Philippians 3, he said, you know, I look at that, and I could build my identity on that. But you know, that's rubbish. He mm. called it rubbish that he might gain Christ. And then Paul looked back at his dreadful past uh, as being a murderous Pharisee. Uh, and he called himself the chief of sinners, but he didn't let that brand him either. Mm. He could have plunged himself into either one of those identities, which were sound identities, but they weren't based on Christ. But he didn't. His attitude was this, and I want to quote from Philippians 3. But one thing I do, you know this verse well, one mm. thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and if I might add, forgetting the issues that are around me, that surround me today, I reach forward to the things which are ahead, and I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And lest we forget, he said, you are to imitate me as I imitate Christ. So when I look at this whole package of our brother Paul, I look at man who had a man who had every right to brand himself based on the overriding issues in society, yet he gave all those up just to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Wow. Hmm. And that meant that he was going to serve other people. Yes. And uh, it's, it's, you know, I just think of that verse, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. And that epitomizes what it means to have concern for others. Uh, it's not just about us. We joined a family and each individual member's health within that family affects the entire rest of the family. So the call to have concern, the call to say in the imitation of Christ, if you will, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never divide from you, uh, even though you might hold some different viewpoints than I do. We are one in Christ. Huge. Yeah. But I think we in the modern church, my friend, we tend to miss it because so many of us don't seem to be satisfied with simply being children of the king. You know, we seek identities in addition to what God has already made us in Christ. Mm. You know, I, I told you when we were talking earlier that uh, my wife and I spent our summers up in New England where frankly, many churches are, are 
eroding away. They're just dying. And so they try to attract people by branding themselves with whatever current social trend is ongoing. So it's almost like they, it's not enough that they preach Jesus, that they have, but they have to be something else. They have to be, if I can use the phrase, a fill in the blank type Christian. They can't just be a Christian. They have mm. to be a fill in the blank Christian. So they add race and ethnicity and education and employment and income and social status and social orientation and whatever other modifier you want. Uh, it's almost like plain vanilla ice cream isn't good enough. You got to put syrup on the top to make it better. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, again, John, I think we come back to this issue. If you don't know who you are, you have to become something, somebody. But there is no greater identity available to any man or woman on this planet than to be able to call themselves a child of God. And I think one of the failures is that we fail to understand the significance of that. And uh, you've heard me do this for years. If you're a child of God, you're a child of the King of Kings. And what do you call the daughter of a king? You call her a princess. And what do you call the son of a king? You call him a prince. And here's the key. How do you treat a prince and a princess? With incredible value, honor, respect, and dignity. You have concern for them. Yeah. For who they are. Okay. You know, Frank, listen to your talk. Uh, I almost wish that when we walked into an assembly of believers or when we walked into the grocery store, if we could peel back the flesh and see the spirit, the pure, perfect spirit that God's put inside of those believers in union with his Holy Spirit, I think we'd be blown away by the glory of what's inside them. And I think were we able to see past the outward trappings and see who they really are, which is how God sees them, uh, we would have, we would be running to show concern for each other. Mm. Yes, sir. I believe that with all my heart. Yeah. So we have failed. I have failed. I suspect you have too. And I think the church at large has largely done a pretty poor job of this. You know, my friend, oh gosh, looking over the years and the battles that you and I have struggled with um, in that church, leading that church, I've come to one conclusion. I guess it's kind of like my, my uh, retired guy's mantra, just <laughs> climbed up nearly to the top of a major university. Uh, and my mantra is kind of this, every difference, every attribute, every accomplishment that once distinguished me from all of my peers is gone in Christ. Mm. I am not Vice Chancellor Russell. I'm John, <laughs> a, a son of the king. That's what I am. Mm. Wow. Yeah, and you know, you, you say we failed. Um, but that never disqualifies us. Oh, no, uh, no. Uh, I love the proverb, the righteous man falls seven times and gets up again. He doesn't call somebody righteous who never falls down. 
He calls them righteous because they get back up again to be who they are, a vessel of the life and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, John, one final thought on that proverb, I know we're running out of time, is, you know, when I'm not big into biblical numerology, you know, there's a lot of people that do that sort of thing. But if I was into that, this would be a, a certainly a great time for it, because the number seven is, according to those people, the number of perfection. And so you could actually say, uh, the righteous man is a perfect failure. <laughs> he keeps oh. falling down, uh, but he gets up again. And yeah. that's the key. And because, uh, because they get up. Yes, sir. They're not failures. That's right. They stand again. Well, my friend, this has been a, a, a charged talk. I know I have a lot of, a lot of deep emotions about this. But I'm going to ask you if you've got any last comments before we wrap this up. Well, every I, the verse that just popped in my head is out of Second Corinthians two, that we are an aroma of life to other people. Uh, every person we come across, we have the opportunity, like Proverbs eighteen twenty one says, to speak life into them or death into them. And I think that there's a creative power in our words when we speak the truth. And this is not a manipulation. Oh, no. Uh, this is an identification. We are speaking to the child of the king. And we have an opportunity to affirm that to them and remind them who they are in him as we share concern for them in their journey of faith to remind them who they are. That's right. And while we like to boast about our identities, we need to be especially attentive to the fact that our brothers and sisters have those very same identities. Mm -hmm. And so are deserving of honor and esteem and support and concern, just as we are. Yes, sir. Wow. Well, my friends, thanks for listening to the podcast today. We've been talking about the one another's, Frank's and my take on life and the body of Christ. Uh, please. Uh, take a moment and visit our website, OurResoluteHope.com. There's some new stuff there uh, we think you'll really like. And begin to watch our members portal. We've got a steady stream of uh, from the vault type materials that we'll be releasing there. Please be sure to check out Pastor Frank's newest book called Finding God in the Gray, The Lonely Path of Pain. Uh, it's a powerful one. It's available on Amazon. And please don't forget to check us out on all of our social media podcasts, uh, platforms. And as always, we close with this reminder from Hebrews 6. It's kind of become our theme verse, Frank, over the months. We have this hope as an anchor for our souls. It's a living hope. It's a resolute hope. It's a steadfast bedrock hope. And that hope is Jesus. So today and always, choose that hope. Choose hope and choose Jesus. Thanks for listening. We trust that you've seen Jesus today. And you know that no matter what you're facing, he offers you himself, his own life. He wants to live his life with you, in you, and through you as you trust him and walk by faith in this troubled world. You've been listening to Our Resolute Hope Podcast. For more information, find us online at OurResoluteHope.com and check out our social media channels under the name Our Resolute Hope.